Many people who donate kidneys do it to help a friend or a loved one. But Lori Lee is different. She decided to donate her kidney to a stranger. I'm Monica Fox, a kidney transplant recipient and director of outreach and government relations for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois and the host of the Journey Continues podcast. Lori Lee's father received the gift of a deceased donor liver, so she decided to pay it forward by donating a kidney to someone in need. Coincidentally, she was giving a kidney at one hospital in Chicago on the very same day in 2016 that I was receiving a kidney at another Chicago hospital. So were kindred spirits. And so I'm happy to welcome Lori and her father, Dan Dickerson, to share their transplant experiences and some of the amazing work they're doing. Come on, let's listen together. Organ donation is not a mind thing, it is a heart thing, literally and figuratively. It's about how we feel about giving a gift that is so personal to other people. And when you click that little box on your driver's license that says you're an organ donor, some people are just doing it for virtue signaling, look. And other people deeply connect with this idea that after they die, a part of them is gonna give life to someone else. A part of them is going to live on. Someone else's blood will pump through their heart, but it's their heart giving life to that person. Donor Diaries, it's your host, Lori Lee. Have you ever wondered what organs you can donate while you're alive besides your kidney? I mean, there's organs like the heart that you obviously can't live without, but just what organs can be donated while alive? While the kidney is the most commonly donated organ, you can also donate part of your liver, a lung or part of a lung, and part of your pancreas or intestine. Ladies, in some hospitals, you can even donate your uterus. So let's talk about the second biggest organ we have, second to our skin, which is the liver. People who need a liver transplant have the same two transplant options as people who need a kidney. They can get on the deceased donor wait list or they can find a living donor. Now, the liver's regenerative. As little as 30% of your liver can regrow to its original volume. So after you donate, your liver function returns to normal in two to four weeks and your liver slowly regrows to nearly its full original volume in about a year. It's actually a story about a liver that motivated me to become a living kidney donor. The keeper of this very special liver is Dan Dickinson, my dad. My dad wears a lot of hats. He's a successful serial entrepreneur who will never fully retire, a pilot, a boat captain, a drone and ham radio enthusiast, world traveler, a papa, and an all-around likable guy. Dan Dickinson is also a Donor Diaries double dipper as he is a liver recipient and chairman of Northwestern's Transplant Village. He's one of my favorite humans and it's fair to say he's a major influencer in my life. 
Welcome, Father. How are you, Lori? Good. How are you, Dad? Doing well. Dad, our family transplant story started over 20 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about when you first found out that a liver transplant might be in your future? Well, that's a great story. So uh, I was on a flight coming back from Denver a on a business trip, and uh, in the flight, I passed out on the airplane. I felt a little bit sick. I thought I had the flu. Uh, I was ready to get home. And uh, I remember uh, the next thing, somebody was hitting me in the face and trying to wake me up. Uh, there was a doctor on board, and he said, uh, well, it's probably a, a vasal. Don't worry about it. But then I passed off again, and uh, he said, okay, uh, you're going to the hospital. So after we landed, uh, they took me to the hospital. They found out I had a, uh ulcer, and the ulcer was a bleeding ulcer. And it was caused by aspirin. So I had a pretty thorough physical while I was in the hospital and uh, had some scans done. And I found out that I had a very small spot on my liver. And as soon as they said that, I thought, okay, uh, now I have to do something about it. The lesion didn't grow at first, but they did determine it was a lesion. And at that time, uh, I researched out, you know, who are the best liver people in the country? And I was lucky because it was right at Northwestern. So I went down to see Dr. Steve Flam at Northwestern. And um, he said, well, and now that you have this uh, uh, lesion, you need to have a CT scan every six months because it could turn into cancer. So I had uh, uh, every six months I'd have a CT. And eventually it started to grow and then they decided uh, they needed to biopsy it. So I had four biopsies before they figured out it was a type of cancer. It was HCC, which is an encapsulated type cancer. It comes in the, it uh, develops in the liver. It usually stays in the liver. But had I not had the CT scan, uh, I would have never known that I had it. And uh, it would have grown into something very, very significant. I often ask, I said, well, if I hadn't have found it, what would have happened? And he says, well, he said, you'd come in here and your organs would be all moved around from a liver that's full of cancer and you get real sick real quick and there's not a lot that we can do. So uh, I made the decision to go down to Northwestern immediately. And uh, at the time they thought, well, what's this guy doing here? He's perfectly healthy. But I made made a great choice. So you're actually pretty lucky that you passed out on the plane. Oh, I was real lucky. And it's amazing the number of medical issues people find because of something else, a physical or, you know, we, we run into a lot of uh, potential living donors that find out they have issues. So, you know, with medicine the way it is today, if you, if you find something early, you know, they can usually fix it. If it goes too long, then, of course, that's a different story. So one thing I respect about you is that you have a really positive outlook and you've always put things into buckets and you have your bucket of things you can fix and your bucket of things you can't fix. And I know that from day one, this was something that you put in the bucket of I can fix this in the event that I ever need a transplant. What happened in 2009 when the situation went from you might need a transplant to you need a transplant. Well, you're right. I live my life in buckets. And uh, it's like uh, if your kid comes home and says, I, I was in a car accident. Okay, it could be one of two buckets. But after they say, hey, I'm fine, then it's in the good bucket and you don't have to worry about a thing. 
I knew that if I had to have a transplant, that it would be in a good bucket. It's something that can be fixed. Because it's a cure. A transplant for your situation was a cure to what was wrong. It absolutely was. And um, I knew that. And uh, after four biopsies, they finally figured out it was uh, HCC. Today, they diagnose HCC without having a biopsy. They can tell just from the scans what it is. But they called me and said, uh, we just wanted to let you know that uh, you do have HCC and it's positive that you do. And I I said, okay, Um, so a transplant is a cure, right? And they said, yes, it's a cure. And I said, well, let's get going. So at that point, I knew I had an issue. I was on a journey. And I also knew that uh, we could fix it. One thing that I remember about the year we were waiting for your liver was that we were on a really short leash. And our family likes to travel, and you're a pilot. But when you're waiting for a deceased donor liver, you can get the call at any time and need to be able to quickly report to the hospital. Well, I wanted to be around if they called me. At first, you're very low on the on the list. And the list is the list of all people that need organs and livers. And it's uh, measured by a score. And the higher the score, the more likely you are to get a liver. So at first, I really didn't have to stick around too much because uh, my score was so low. Let's pause there. In previous episodes, we talked about the kidney transplant wait list, which, depending on where one lives, will allow someone to get a deceased kidney transplant in five to ten years. With kidneys, the sickest people don't get prioritized over the more healthy people. You get a kidney when you get to the top of the list, and that's a function of time and just waiting your turn. So with livers, the system is different. The sicker you are, the higher your MELD score, and the higher you go on the wait list. That's right. They have a MELD score, which is a a combination of three different blood tests, and you add them all up, and that's your MELD score. Usually, the higher the MELD score, the sicker you are. In the case of HCC, you have the exception points, so every 90 days they add a few bonus points for you, so your number is artificially high, and for the most part, you, you, you feel pretty good, you're not sick as opposed to having other types of liver disease where it's uh, progressional and um, the sickest people get the livers, which seems a little bit backwards, but that's the way it is. So with livers, it's done by MELD score. With kidneys, it's done by months and days and years. And I always felt very lucky that you had a high score, yet you you were never sick. I never had a sick dad going through all this. No, I felt great. Um I there's nothing that I didn't do uh, physically. I felt great. I mean, one time I went in and Steve Flam looked at. He says, "You got the thickest file." Of course, they kept kept everything in files in those days. You've got the <laughs> thickest file, and you're my healthiest patient. And I said, "Well, let's make the file thicker, and I'll stay healthy." So that's how we worked it. Tell me about your transplant. Ah, well, uh, I had four false alarms. I think it was the fifth one that uh, finally uh, came about. Uh, I was called in three or four times. Uh, They had a liver, and they thought it would be a match. They thought it was a good liver. They don't know until it's actually removed from the deceased donor. 
really how good that liver is or isn't. There's a lot that they can tell beforehand, but uh, more that they can tell after it's um, uh, after it's removed. So I was ready for a liver transplant three or four times, and um, each time they sent me home. So, and each time it was on a holiday. <laughs> Each time it was on a holiday. It was on Halloween. It was on Thanksgiving. It was always on a holiday. Um, I think we ordered pizza for Thanksgiving that year. I think we did. <laughs> that was okay after they kicked me out. But uh, I was ready for it. I knew that it would be a month out of my life where I'd get the transplant, I'd have to recover, and then I'd go back to doing what I did every day. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And I never had any doubts about it. Um, I had a great team. I had trust in the team. They're amazing people. And th there's amazing outcomes. Um, and it's not a death sentence like it once was. And uh, it was a cure. And everything went according to my plan. So I remember clearly um, after... After your transplant, you were all hooked up to, I don't know, 10 machines and you were on a ventilator. I remember you looked very old and you don't normally look old, but you did that day. And um, I remember that they told Annie and mom and I that uh, a little bit about your donor and that it was a young person that had an untimely death. What would you say to that donor family if you had the chance? Well, um, I tried to contact them. It's a little bit like uh, an adoption agency. You write a letter, and if the uh, family wants to read the letter, they will. I don't know. I sent the letter through the intermediary, and I uh, made sure that uh, the intermediary signed off on everything that was in it before I sent it. And I never heard from him. And I, I wish that I could today because I'd show him what we've done as a family in the transplant world, uh, what you've done, uh, Transplant Village, all the different ways that we've helped other people that, are in the, that were in the same situation that I was. Uh, I think I would hope that they would feel uh, pretty good about it. But historically, about a third of the people that receive letters from a recipient answer the letters, and uh, most don't. And it's a very difficult letter to write. I waited a year after my transplant before I wrote the letter. And uh, it was a very difficult letter to write because here I benefited from somebody else's demise. And it's uh, um, we were celebrating the day that I got the liver and uh, another family uh, was in mourning. So that's um, that's hard to uh, put together sometimes. It is a lot, and we might not know them, but we will forever be linked to your donor and his family, and without them, you might not be on my podcast today. So you referenced Transplant Village. Tell me a little bit about how you made these lemons into lemonade. Well, um, after my transplant, a, a few months after my transplant, they wanted to make sure I was okay, I suppose. Uh, I was approached by the Northwestern Memorial Foundation, and um, they wanted me to chair mini fundraising effort for transplant. And I said, okay, uh, tell me what the model is, and um, let's talk about it. 
And they presented to me a model that they have in other areas of medicine. It's called, uh, this one was called the Transplant Advisory Council. And I looked at it and um, I, I wasn't really impressed by the model. And I thought it could be so much more. I said, well, give me some time. I'd like to put something together. Let me think about it. And I think it could be a lot more than what you're proposing. So I put together a sketch for Transplant Village where it would serve in three areas, fundraising, patient support, and patient education. Uh, Taking an idea and uh, making it into reality is something that I do very easily. Uh, And that's what we did with Transplant Village. We got a few people together and uh, we came up with a vision. I presented the vision to the Transplant Center and to the foundation. I said, well, this is what I'd like to do. And if you're behind me and you'll support me in the effort, I'll do it. And they agreed to it. And uh, that's how Transplant Village started. That was over 10 years ago. It was. Yep. And I was your first member. I think you were. Um, <laughs> I know that we've done a lot in 10 years, but what of all of the things we've done together with Transplant Village are you the most proud of? I would say two things. First, on the kidney side, we we have the Kidney Champion Program, which you developed with Harvey Meisel, and we teach people that need kidneys, we teach them how to leverage social media in order to find uh, a kidney donor. And we've been very successful at that. There's a lot of people that have gotten kidneys that have gone through that course uh, and we're in a position to hold their hands. So we've made a difference. I mean, you can measure it. Uh, and there's uh, people walking around with a new kidney today from going through that course. And uh, that's very satisfying to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is on the fundraising side. The director the, who recently left, uh, Dr. Mike Abacassis, I uh, had a vision to have a $10 million endowment. Everybody thought $10 million was a lot of money, and it is, but we exceeded the goal. And now we have $10 million that will be there forever. It throws off uh, half a million dollars a year. And we use that to fund the various initiatives that the clinicians come up with. And we, we score them. And they make application for these grants. And the way that the application is made is exactly the way that they apply to the NIH, the National Institute of Health, when they ask NIH for money. Sounds incredibly rewarding. It is. And uh, we've had some great successes. So that's what this $10 million was for, was for the high risk, high reward. So I know this is your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But now it's my turn to ask you the question. All right. I'm ready. Okay. So um, I know that you were really impacted by by my liver transplant. Exactly how much until way later. And in a way, the whole transplant was more difficult on my family than it was for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was the guy on the table asleep. You guys were awake and wondering if I was going to come out. I know that you were really impacted about that. So how did that play into you becoming a living kidney donor? 
That's a good question. I was really impacted by it. Overall, your liver experience was a positive experience for me. I mean, it was scary and the waiting was really hard and, you know, not going far from home and then all those false alarms. That part of it was hard. But once you got it and we kind of became part of the alumni club of transplant people and we started meeting people on the other side, that was really positive. When we started Transplant Village, I'd frequently be sitting around the table. I'd be the only person there with all my organs, you know, and I know that like people would poke fun at that and stuff, but I met so many different kidney donors and recipients through that experience. It really normalized it. And if I recall, there really weren't a lot of liver people in our group. There was some, but the vast majority were kidney recipients. I I think when I just realized how simple it was for many donors and when I, you know, see how it positively impacted our life, I wanted to impact somebody else's life in the same way. And it felt like a really natural fit in terms of finding a way to pay the gift forward that your donor gave to our family. Well, your mom and I remember when you decided to donate and you told us that you had already started testing at Northwestern. Your mother was relieved (laughs) that you weren't donating part of your liver. She was. I remember (laughs) that. (laughs) So we uh, we were pretty happy about it. Obviously, I'm very familiar with your experience, but tell the audience about your donor experience. It was a positive experience for sure. When you got your transplant, the seed was planted and I knew I was going to do something to give back. Like I felt very compelled to be part of this thing that to me from the outside, you know, and as a participant, I guess, just felt like a really amazing life thing to have happen, like to share parts. But I have a business and it was it wasn't realistic for me to take two weeks off work. (laughs) And that was probably the biggest thing that deterred me from doing it right after your transplant. Also, I didn't want to give my mom more PTSD. I wanted to give her a few years. Then when I got to the point in my business where I could be gone for more than a week without things exploding, uh, the idea came back really strong. And it was kind of one of those things where it was like, ah, now's the time. Let's do this. Let's get going. And I, and I just wanted to do it, and I wanted to do it right away. I chose kidney because um, the leverage that you can create by starting a chain. And when I went to Northwestern to get tested, I did tell them that I, I did want to start a chain because you can only do this once. So they, they found a chain. It, was, it ended up being a six-person chain, meaning it was a catalyst for six life-saving transplants. I don't know much about where my kidney went. I know that it was flown into another state. Then that person had a loved one who donated and and their kidney flew to California. And I really don't know what happened in the chain after that. I thought it was very appropriate that I got to donate the week of Thanksgiving, which is part of why we're doing this podcast in November. Um, It's my five-year anniversary this year. Congratulations. Thank you. And it just felt like a very appropriate week to give thanks and to give life. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So if you look at the totality, what was the best part of the experience for you? Hmm. Um, There's a lot of good parts to it, but I think 
the, the best part for me is that I've found something in life that I'm extremely passionate about and it's given me an outlet to help other people in a way where I can feel like I make a, a big impact. And it's fun working with you on this too. <laughs> and that's the other part too, is I think it's, you know, it's not every day you get to work on important life stuff with your dad and somebody that you like, you know, I mean, I love you, but I like spending time with you too. And we have a really fun time and we're a good team. We work really well together. And we have fun, just plain fun. We do. So some of this, it couldn't have been all easy for you. What was the hardest part of the, of the whole experience? So afterwards, you know, a lot of donors talk about how they popped a few Tylenol and then they went back to work, you know, a few days later. That's not a vast majority of them, but that was the small percentage that I figured I would be in. I figured I'd be back to work in four days and that, you know, I'd, I'd take Tylenol and I wouldn't have pain. I don't, I'd never had surgery before, so I don't have anything to compare this to. It's the only surgery I had, but I don't think I'm really cut out for the painkillers that they give you afterwards. And it felt like it just made me blah and bah humbug. And I was expecting right after to, of course, experience physical pain, but I felt, I thought that mentally I'd, I'd have a major high and you hear about donors having like a high from the experience. And while I felt grateful, I also didn't feel like myself. And I just felt kind of sad. It happens to a rather large percentage of donors, and they don't know why. Sometimes I think donors are afraid to talk about it because they think if they say that they didn't feel great after they did this, this, you know, kind act, that they did something wrong or their intentions were in the wrong place or something. But I think it's important that you do talk about it because it people do experience it. It wore off. And once it wore off, you know, it's, I'm sure probably like having a baby or something where it's like, you can't remember the painful hard part. Cause when I look back on the experience, I don't think about that, even though at the time it was a little bit hard for me. Now, when I look back at it, I think of the short recovery time and how it was relatively easy and that I was back to normal life really quickly. I mean, I was back to work part-time after a week and a half and full-time after two weeks. And then a few months later, I was in Thailand. I do remember you being wheeled out of the recovery room. And the first thing you did before you got into bed, you got up and walked a mile on the floor. I did. Do you know why I did that? I think you had to prove a point. Well, I did because you didn't do that. (laughs) And you ended up going back to the hospital because you had such bad pain in your shoulders because you get gas in your shoulders if you don't walk. So I was afraid of the gas pain that you had and therefore was trying to walk so that I wouldn't have it. Well, I wasn't about ready to walk a mile the day after my (laughs) transplant. So there. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, they they had me out in less than 48 hours, I want to say was it like 36 hours from the time I, I think, got there? I think it was 36 hours, and uh, somebody receiving a kidney, you, usually they're out in a couple of days. Yeah. It's just a day in the park with the surgeons, it not is. so much for the patient. Mm-mm. So what kind of stuff are you working on now? Well, I like to work on big impact projects. And for the past year and for at least the next year, my time's devoted to Crowdsource for Life, which is a Maitree River production. It's a compelling one-hour TV special I'm working on featuring the personal true stories of living kidney donors. Over 75 living donors sent in stories to be cast. We interviewed 35, which was just an incredible experience hearing all of those stories. 
and then we chose 18 of those donors um, as our cast. So the content for this special is going to come from a stage storytelling show of TED Talk quality, staged at the beautiful Majestic Theater, which is in Dallas, Texas, and it's going to be aired on PBS. So that content from the storytelling show is going to be used to create this one-hour PBS special. WTTW Chicago is our presenting and distributing station, and they predict that a minimum of 225 PBS stations will air this, and each station can air it for two years. So on average, they'll air it six times over two years, which means we will get our message to about 1.3 million households over a two-year period. So that's pretty exciting and pretty big impact. Once it airs, we'll also have live events featuring a two-hour special of the film in several cities across the U.S. I'm not sure how many additional people will reach with the live events, but I think that these events are going to be particularly impactful, compelling, and fun because there's going to be donors at the events. There's going to be question and answer after the screening with um, people from the transplant industry there to answer questions. Um, it's just going to be really great in terms of community events. The goal of Crowdsource for Life isn't to recruit living organ donors. It, it is not to recruit living organ donors, but I think that that's going to be a natural byproduct of this inspiring film and that some people will watch it and have that lightning strike moment and take a serious look into becoming a living donor. They'll now have a point of reference to transplant through this and maybe they'd be more likely to step forward as a donor to a friend or family member. It's exciting stuff. I'm confident about all of the players involved and, and where we're going. Once we're fully funded and we're still working on that, we'll move into production, and hopefully that'll be by the end of the year. So that's a peek into the Dickinson family transplant story. We'd like to dedicate this episode to my dad's donor and to my recipient, both strangers and both very important pieces of our story. Cheers. Thanks for listening today. Check out DonorDiaries.com for a link to my blog, As the Liver Turns. It's a great blog. To learn more about Transplant Village, you can visit our website at transplantvillage.org. Donor Diaries is produced by Rob and Jeff Lee. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please like and subscribe so we can drop episodes and you'll know about it. And don't forget, you can register as an organ donor at organdonor.gov and learn more about living donation at nkdo.org. To learn more about Crowdsource for Life and how you can support it, check out my show notes. Thanks for listening.